before we get going, for all of you who came out and worked yesterday in the heat, I have been authorized to give you sainthood, and I will, I will do that. Now, it may not mean much in a lot of circles, but it will mean something around here. But anyway, Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Well, primarily we're going to look at verse 1. But anyway, uh, we will go through it. Last week we finished up uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. We ended the six days of creation by our Lord. So turn to chapter 2 and we'll look at verses 1 through 7. Genesis 2, 1 through 7. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plants of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field was grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became... A living being. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 1 there. Therefore God, all tired and worn out from all the creation that he had done, needed to rest. No, not for a moment. <laughs> God did not need to rest. But he did for our benefit institute what we call the Sabbath, the day of rest. God here is setting a pattern. He's setting a cycle for man's benefit. I have people, when they realize that I'm a preacher, they say, huh, you only work one day a week. That's not a bad job, you know. Hey, that's that's okay. But... uh, Our Lord, from the beginning of time, He created a seven-day week. It hasn't always been that way. There have been attempts by different peoples and societies uh, to create a ten-day week. During the French Revolution, for instance, there were attempts to go to a ten-day week. These efforts never really caught on and never were really accepted. But God Himself, our designer, our programmer, installed the seven-day week. Excuse me. God encourages us, each and every one of us, to have one day of rest out of seven. We run into problems, though, when a person or a system, even a church, gets hung up on what we call legalism, trying or forcing 
people to observe a Sabbath. They make rules, they make regulations that are totally apart from the nature of God. And the commandment of remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is the only commandment of the ten that is not repeated in the New Testament. Isn't that peculiar? There are quite a few religions and denominations who strictly observe Sabbath worship. Of these, some believe that worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week, can even be a mark of the beast, spoken of in Revelation. If you worship on Sunday, <clears throat> that's bad news. But why does the Christian church, why do we worship on Sunday, not Saturday? I'm glad you asked that. I'll answer it. The early church, after the resurrection of Jesus, the early church, the first Christians to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the risen Lord, and celebrate the fact that he was alive, they met on the first day of the week when Jesus arose, celebrating his resurrection. Years back, uh, we had a family who attended uh, for several months, and the father came to me one Sunday after the service, and basically he was trying to tell me that they would no longer be coming back to the church and they would no longer be worshiping with us. And, you know, of course, that's something you never want to hear. And he told me, well, we, we enjoy the way you go through the Scriptures and how you put emphasis on the Scripture, and we even enjoy your contemporary worship and so forth. But he says, as a church, you're uh, not following the Bible by worshiping on Sunday. <laughs> really? <laughs> and he told me that we were following a pagan worship practice by worshiping on Sunday. I felt inclined <laughs> to disagree with him. And I, he was resorting it all back to Constantine, Emperor of Rome, who instituted Sunday worship. And I said, well, it's interesting that the early church, centuries before Constantine, felt inclined to meet on the first day of the week to break bread and to have worship. And the references for those are Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Those are two of the references for us to assemble together and worship on the first day of the week. But you know, Scripture tells us we're not to esteem one day over another. We are to be in an attitude of worship each and every day of the week. Now, if our society say they made Wednesday the day that nobody worked, and that would be set aside as the day of the week to take it easy and so forth, guess what? We would have services on Wednesday morning. That's just a matter of fact. But Jesus... 
himself, when he walked on the earth here, he caused the Jewish religious leaders much anguish. He even caused them to plot and try to kill him. For Jesus did good works on Sabbath. Fully knowing how the religious leaders observed the Sabbath. For you see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had turned the Sabbath into a burden on the people. It was no longer what he had created it for, a day of rest. They had made it something that God never intended. Early in the ministry of Jesus, he's there in Jerusalem. He passes by the pool of Bethesda, and he sees a man laying by the pool there who's had an infirmity, a handicap you might say, for 38 years. Now the pool of Bethesda was like the local hospital of Jerusalem. Many sick people laid around this pool for legendary, an angel would come down and stir the water, and it was the first person into the water after stirring of the water by the angel, that person would receive their healing. But this man has been lying there a long time, perhaps even most of those 38 years, we don't know. And Jesus asked this man a question. And he said, do you want to be made well? A simple, straightforward question and the man never answers that question. He makes excuses, saying, Hey, before I can get to the water, somebody else steps in, and I don't get healed. Jesus blows right through that, and Jesus, being full of compassion and mercy, he commands the man, he says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man is made well. And he obeys Jesus. And he picks up his bed and he walks. But here's the fly in the ointment. It's the Sabbath. So has Jesus commanded this man to break the law, the Sabbath law? No, he hasn't. Not really. But Jesus has commanded this man to break the law according to the Jewish leaders' interpretation of the law, according to their rendering of the law, Jesus has commanded the man to walk. But in John 5.16, we read, For this reason, because Jesus healed a man, told him to walk, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Do those who observe the Sabbath take it seriously? Obviously. They take it so seriously that they seek to kill Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. Think that through for a moment. Wanting to kill Jesus for doing good. Performing a healing. And you see, our Lord has problems with that group. He has problems with rules and regulations that are put in place contrary to the goodness of God. 
contrary to his nature. Jesus personally comes against the legalistic group of that day, their Sabbath laws, and in particular, he comes against the Jewish leaders. You see, the Sabbath laws have become a hindrance. They've become an obstacle, no longer a blessing that the Lord intended for the Sabbath to be. And there are traditions of man that have become hindrances of our relationship with God. And we do well to examine why we believe what we believe and why do we do the things we do in a worship service, not only the do's and don'ts of the faith. Recently, I read about a snake handler up in West Virginia. That always gets my interest. <laughs> and he died from a rattlesnake bite. This wasn't the first time he had been bitten. His dad, also a preacher and a snake handler, also died from a snake bite. Wouldn't that tell you something? You've been bitten, your dad died from a snake bite, and now you're in serious trouble yourself. By the way, he did call 911 right before he died trying to get help. So why do religious leaders go off on these tangents? Do these weird, God-offending behavior-type acts and call them worship? For me, I think these leaders are seeking power over the people. And that's nothing new in the religious world. If by some way I can make you think I am special by handling snakes or instituting other ridiculous rules and regulations, I assume the position of power and authority in your life. And if my rules and regulations, my traditions, force you to do things that I deem necessary to have a right standing with God, I have also achieved that position of authority. For instance, say I require you to confess your sins to me. I put myself in a position of authority over you. Especially if you're feeling guilty about your sins. And we all do, and we all sin, and we all feel guilty about them. But I then can manipulate you into behavior methods. Many religion, many churches use fear to control their membership and their people. Let's soften that a little bit. Take the giving of tithes and offerings and prayer. It's easy. It's an easy sell to persuade people to make them feel guilty 
about what they give or how much they pray. Whenever I talk about giving here, and I do occasionally, I try to proclaim to you the beauty that we have as believers to support God's kingdom. We're blessed to be able to give. It's a blessing to support God's kingdom. We are to be a cheerful giver, never under guilt, never under condemnation. One of the things that sold me on Calvary Chapel years ago was I was at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith was talking about giving and how it was a privilege for believers to support God's kingdom. And he said, and if you're here this morning and you have given an offering and you are not a believer and you are not a Christian, see me after the service and I will make sure you get your money back. And I had never heard a preacher say that in my life. Forgiving is for God's people. We are allowed to support His church. Compare that now to, and you've all seen them and heard them, the schemes, the arm twisting that goes on in some churches by some TV preachers to get money out of you. Now, if you've attended here for any length of time, you know that we have offering boxes in the back. And very seldom do I even talk about giving. I want to be encouraging you people to do good works, not trying to condemn you. God forgive me if I ever try to condemn you into good works. It's not my job, it's not my duty to condemn anyone. My job, my duty, is to speak the truth of God, the truth of His Word, and then try to live an example in front of you. I'm to be an example, and I, I take that serious. The Holy Spirit, He is the one who convicts, and He draws us where to repentance. It's not preachers. It's not our job. But things like the Sabbath laws, they had become so burdensome, so controlling by the time Jesus came on the scene in Israel that Jesus makes it a point in His public ministry to oppose these man-made laws and regulations. And the primary one that he goes after is the Sabbath laws and regulations. Some of those laws were really nonsensical. That's all you can say about them. One of those laws is you could only travel two miles from your house on the Sabbath. So to get around that, they would tie a two-mile-long string to their front door. That gives you four miles. That is nonsense. By the way, you couldn't spit on the ground either on the Sabbath. 
couldn't spit on the ground. Because if you spit and it hit the dust and the dust parted, you were plowing. And that is forbidden. That's true. You couldn't wear false teeth. You're carrying a burden. They wouldn't want to be doing that. Even in Israel today, they have what they call Sabbath elevators. And these elevators, these Sabbath elevators, go up and down in these hotels and so forth, and they stop and open at each floor automatically. Why? Because if you push a button, say third floor, you are working, you are laboring, and there's no labor allowed on the Sabbath. And the, you get in, I got into one of these Sabbath elevators. I go, what am I doing in this thing, man? It's stopping at every floor on the way up. But a good Orthodox Jew, he looks for that Sabbath elevator. And so you have a, a modern city like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and the Sabbath reg regulation make it seem archaic. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what Jesus had to say on the Sabbath. So turn with me to Matthew 12, and we'll look at some verses there. In Matthew 12:8, we read that Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's God over all His creation, all His regulation, and He is God over the Sabbath. But the Jewish leaders, they are now opposing Jesus, and they're primarily opposing Him because of His Sabbath teachings. And these Jewish leaders are on, on a mission. They're trying to trap Him, and they're going to use the Sabbath as that means of trapping him. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 through 14. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they asked that they might accuse him. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of a, how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Wow. Jesus goes into a synagogue. Now, this is not the temple there in Jerusalem, but it's a synagogue, a place of worship apart from the temple. The Jewish leaders of that synagogue, they know Jesus is in town, and they have a stooge set up. They have this man there that has a handicap. He has a withered hand. And these religious leaders, they ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they want to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. It's interesting to note that these religious leaders, they have no regard 
for the man with the withered hand. He's just a pawn. He's just a, t a tool to be used to try to trap Jesus. Consider that. You take your children to any place that's public, say like the mall, where there might be a handicapped person. And we instruct our children, don't stare, because that's rude. Be sensitive to the feelings of other people. And that's just being courteous. We want our children to be courteous. Yet these religious leaders have absolutely no regard for this man with the withered hand. They use his handicap for their own purposes. That's pretty bad. Yet these religious leaders, with no regard for this man and his feeling, want to see what Jesus will do. They think that they have trapped Jesus. They think they have a basis for an argument to condemn Jesus. But how many of you have found out you can't argue with God and win? <laughs> the best you can do is get a draw and he says, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> That's the best you can hope for. But Jesus asks these Jewish leaders a rhetorical question. He says, if you have a sheep, and it falls into a pit on Sabbath, will you not lift it out? This man with the withered hand, any man in the eyes of God, is of more value than any animal or any sheep. You Jews consider this. You would be quick to help an animal if it fell into a pit. And you're willing, you're more than willing, in fact, you require this man to remain lame for your own petty, selfish reasons. They're more than willing that this man remain handicapped. And then, don't ever miss this, Jesus tells them the law. He doesn't ask them. He said, therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. No bones about it. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Don't try to hinder me from doing good. That's what Jesus is telling them. Then Jesus heals the man. What do the Pharisees do? Well, they go out of the synagogue and they plot and take counsel how they might kill Jesus. And they're able to plot the death of Jesus without realizing how contrary to God they have become. We read in the book of Proverbs, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? These Pharisees are plotting murder, thinking they are protecting Sabbath laws. 
which are not laws, because Jesus just told them what the law. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But they're traditions. Their traditions dictate to them to even murder. What is the message there? What is our lesson in this? Brothers and sisters, in the most humble way I can ever speak to you, guard your conscience. Make sure you're living a life that demonstrates grace. Each of us have ideas and concepts of right and wrong. Make sure those concepts reflect the grace of God, the nature of God, which is always okay to do good. How could the Sabbath, a day of rest, created for man to give him a good thing, a blessing from God, how could it ever be transformed into such a burden that I'm willing to kill to protect it. Well, simply by evil manipulating religious leaders. That's how. May we never fall into that. Amen? Amen. If I can get you to stand, we'll close in prayer.